And now, coming to you live from the Gerson Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest Liza Trombey on the Coot Street Podcast! And we're back. Hi, Liza. I'm, I get to talk to both of my editors now at once and complain about why I'm, I'm not on this list. <laughs> but first of all, we need to explain something about this new format for Coot Street Podcast episodes. We're talking with Liza for a, a shorter time than usual, followed by two other shorter episodes, which we'll be putting out as three episodes in one week. It's a, it's a, it's a Cood Street tsunami. Um, it is. It's an analytic are spectacular. Are you going to keep doing this? Or we is this a, we'll see. We're, 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 going to, we're going to do it until we bore people into submission. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, but we're here because, with, with you, Liza, because... The February issue of Locus, with a spectacular cover, just came out, like, yesterday. It's over. The Locus recommended reading list is out. How are you feeling? Oh, you know, it's always a mixture of – it's a huge relief, and I'm very happy about it. I'm happy it's done. I'm happy the magazine is out. Can't be changed. Like, that's – like, you get to the part where you can't make any more changes, and that is a good thing. But it's it's hard. You know, there's always books that – could have been on there and, and, you know, and then later on it's like, oh, you know, there's always regrets. And then there's like, people are happy and, you know, it's, it's a good thing. I'm, I'm actually really happy with this one. I think, I think we did a good job. Everybody pitched in and, and cared about it a lot. And I think that's, that's the main thing, right? Well, maybe we should sort of start there. I mean, because anyone who listens to the podcast regularly might have an idea, but, how do you go about it? When does the preparation for recommended reading and the year in review issue begin? Uh, well, so we, for the summary stuff, we're, we're bibliographically indexing everything that we see all year. So there's some reports that add into the book summary part, and we are receiving magazines every month. But for the actual reading list um probably the mid-october we start making sure i have um as we receive books for review i start putting them on shelves we start scanning them into a, a spreadsheet and so that forms the first list that we send out to all of the reviewers and then to a couple more people some past reviewers some people in other areas that see books that maybe we won't see um, other professionals and then we start doing rounds of did you like it or didn't you like it basically mm-hmm. so the so, process just isn't just your favorites then <laughs> <laughs> right oh I wish I had read all those books <laughs> I think we looked at 447 book titles so I would it would be amazing if I could have read all those but um I think we had, do we have 15 people or more voting on it? Mm-hmm. So we really need everybody. And then we have the, like, you know, Russell really likes hard SF and Adrian likes quirky science fiction. And we have people who read more dark fantasy or more fantasy and more horror. And so, you know, the, the thing that I say in the intro, which is that this is not the list that any single one of the reviewers would have put together, but mm-hmm. it's the, amalgam it's the the aggregate of all of their opinions so that you get that 
a, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I, I don't think that this list would suit any one person, but it does cover a lot of bases that I don't is, think anyone reads. Is it accurate to say that a book has to be seen by, let's say, at least a couple of people and ideally several? Yeah, and in fact, the um, science fiction section this time took more votes to get on. Mm-hmm. Mostly because there were a lot of books that had more people voting on them. It was really nice to have a strong set of books that I had three or four people who read it and really liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, and some years it's less, you know, we have a lot of books and pe- there are books that only one person reads or one, you know, we because when you split up the reviewers by, oops, sorry, that's my cat's. Mm-hmm. Um, by kinds of books, you end up, you know, people complain about duplicate reviews, but then the duplicate reviewers allow us to have a better sense of how a book is when it comes to voting, you know. But I do think it definitely, it took several votes, and in science fiction it took more, because more people had read more of the science fiction books. Just to give people a sense of perspective, do you, and I don't even know if you know this, how many books about simply came into Locus last year? Um, I have that number. I think we saw... I think we saw 2,400 books. Okay, that's... Yeah, I think 1,100 of them were new titles. Wow. So 1,100 new titles that came down to about 400 or so that were considered, and then there's the handful that actually make the list... Right, and we're at 178 if you don't count the novellas. Is the the biggest structural challenge getting overlapping opinions, or is it finding people to be involved in the process? Mm. (laughs) You asked me this question, Jonathan, even though you are intimately involved with the other half of it, which is the short fiction, so we're going to have to interrogate you on this right after me. Um, But it the reviewers, I would say 90% of the reviewers just are ready to do it and they leap in. There are a few people I have to chase, and there are some people who just bow out of voting entirely. But I imagine that's usually logistic and not that's not a choice that they've made so much as a, like, never got around to it. Um, I think it is trickier to make sure that people have read the same books Yeah. Um, in order to get multiple votes. I think there are some really good books that only one reviewer reads, and so it gets a vote, but it doesn't compete with the other books that a lot of people read. Which, you know, if you're going to do a recommended selection from a group of people, that's, you have to go from the intersections, right? That's that's where it is. I so. think speaking, speaking as one of the voters, one of the other things that you have to resist doing uh, is looking at a book on the list or we sent these ballots get sent around and there's a book by it's, it's by an author I really like, and I know it's a good book and all the reviews I've read have said it's a good book, but I haven't read it. And the temptation is to just recommend it. But then you feel like, okay, you're recommending something on the basis of the author's reputation. So I, I was conscientious this year about not recommending anything. I hadn't at least read most of Right. No, I think that's good. And I do, I know that people do that across the board with all the awards and all of the ways that they vote, that they're like, well, I know I like author X, so I'm going to vote for that book. But every author, even our most beloved authors, are going to write some humdingers of terrible books once in a while. And 
and you want and I really want to make sure that the books that we're recommending stand up to that. That like these right. are the ones our reviewers really liked, which means they have to have read them. <laughs> like is a requirement. Were there books that were better loved than others by the voting population of, for, yeah. for the awards? There were. In fact, um, let's see. Of course, it would be helpful if I actually had this in front of me. But um, Blackfish City got a ton, a ton, ton of votes. The mm. Sam Miller book. That was like, in fact, I did, I haven't done this in the past where I wrote, um, let's see if I can pull it up, where I wrote in something about the voting. Normally, it's just, here's these books, these ones are a series, these are this, this is that. And this time, I actually named the ones that got the most votes. And now I'm sorry, I'm talking slowly because I'm looking mm-hmm. in my iPad. Well, I'm, I'm looking um, into, you mentioned Capital Valente's Space Opera was one that seemed to have a lot of support. Yeah, in, yeah, in, in my write-up in the year in review, I actually talk about it. Let me see if I can get to it and I can mention well, it. Well, I, I guess it's probably worth sort of saying to listeners that Locus's annual benchmarking process for the best of the year, for the history of the field, really has three components, doesn't it? Because it has a year in review issue, which includes write-ups by yourself uh, by reviewers who work for the magazine and by other people from the field. Then it mm-hmm. has a recommended reading list component. And then there is, somewhat later in the year, the the Locus Awards themselves, which are you know, voted, you know, vote, voted on by everybody at large, but primarily Locus readers. Right. Yeah, and this is the first step. I mean, this is, I always tell people there's sort of like, if you go through the whole process, our forthcoming list is, the selected one is the books that we are potentially thinking about reviewing, and then there are books we review, and then there's our recommendations for the year, everyone's write-ups, and then there's the voting, right? And then you go on to all the rest of the awards, and we try to get in ahead of that so we can sort of set a, a pace for it. But in the, so in science fiction books, for example, this year, going back to your earlier question, um, we had, I think, Blackfish City got like eight or nine, which is a lot. I mean, that's almost half of our reviewers read it and loved it. Space Opera got a lot. The, uh, by the picking of her thumbs, got a lot. Um, and Adam then, Roberts, yeah. yeah, by Adam Roberts. Uh, Revenant Gun by Yoon Ha Lee, which I think was the third in the yeah, in that thought. series. Yes, and Europe at Dawn by Dave Hutchison, again a, um, I think the third is that the third fourth, in that? F- fourth and closer fourth, in the series, right? right. It, fu- it finished it, and then, um, and then sort of went down from there. But still, a lot of people, um, a lot of really strong voting, which was nice to see because sometimes uh, it's not it's it's not always that. Sometimes it's sort of spread out. And it doesn't feel like there are really strong frontrunners, and this year it felt like there were. So that was nice. What about on on your end, Jonathan? Do you find it well, hard to get people well, who do the, that? There, there is an enormous structural problem with the short fiction market, which is then immediately reflected in compiling the short fiction list. And that's that there is a clear distinction between people who read print and people who read online. And so finding a number of people who are able to, to 
comment and be involved, first of all, across the spectrum is a real challenge. And then to get a, a blend of opinions, because to some degree you're blending opinions. Uh, obviously, when we're compiling for the short fiction list, our short fiction reviewers are, you know, predominantly in it. So obviously, you know, now we have Karen Burnham and we have Rich Horton involved. There were some legacy votes, basically, that we were able to bring in from from Garda Dozois from his columns for the. You know, so this is the last, you know, your recommended reading list that will have been in, influenced by him. Directly, at least. Uh, but then there is, yeah. So it, it does mean that there's a real challenge, and it means that th- th- I feel that even now, and it's something that I'm painfully aware of, as you know, print is perhaps a little underrepresented in the list compared to how I feel it really should be in an ideal world. That's my value judgment. So hopefully <laughs> you know, we will continue to try and deal with that. And that's always been the thing, right? It's always been distribution. We've always had uh, smaller presses with less distribution, smaller print runs. Um, We've had, you know, the big magazines and then uh, online magazines were new and people didn't like to read on screens. And that sort of turned itself around and now it's the other way around. And so it was always not balanced. And I don't know that it can ever be balanced because there's that thing about how many people could see it, how many people could see it for cheap, um, and then how much? Even then, how much marketing and support did like for the bigger titles? How much marketing and support did they get? If a, you know, did it get released in more than one territory? Was it only released mm-hmm. in one territory? So that kind of thing is always there. And I think what's making it really stand out in contrast this year is that the print magazines are being underserved in some ways because they just aren't being seen by as many people. And it's a it's a problem, but I don't know what the solution for that is well i think i don't know what the solution is either though i suspect it will evolve over time i really do i don't think we're going to continue to see this dichotomy i think it'll be resolved but i mean there is actually a version of it that comes to the that appears in the book market or in or in the the book list and that is where work doesn't isn't published in the north american territory directly so for example one of the top handful of science fiction books that you just mentioned was Europe at Dawn by Dave Hutchinson. Now, it is available in the United States, but it's predominantly a British book. And so it probably hasn't been as widely read. And I'm curious, with books like that, and with perhaps even books in translation, or books that are published outside the United States, do you feel something like the Locust Recommended Reading List and Year and Review has a part to play in bringing those books to the attention of readers? Yeah, no, I love that those books are in there. I love that there are books on the list that I've never heard of, that I never read. Mm -hmm. You know, that's because one part that we sort of skipped in the, or we talked about at the beginning of building the list is that we put together all the books that we have reviewed and we say, vote on this list of books, but tell me what we're missing here. What have you read that was really good? And hopefully giving enough time for people who are, invested in it to go out and read that book if they haven't or go oh right that book i did read that book and 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 there are those books on this list and i that makes me happy i like them (laughs) i you know we don't need more of the same we need to have quality books we need to hit a lot of different kinds of readers interests and we need to make sure that it's you know carefully done and and that we can stand behind it. And I think that's... I, I think another thing that works with a similar in a similar way is that there's so much blurring of genres now and so much blurring between uh, 
literary fiction and uh, and mainstream fiction and uh, and so there are collections which uh, might not come to the attention of a science fiction and fantasy readership. Friday Black comes to mind. The uh, right. uh, uh, I don't know how a uh, uh, Jelly Brenya um, and it's powerful stuff. And some of it is uh, I, I read a couple of short story collections. Abby Mayotis. Some of her stuff was published in Ten House and literary magazines. Uh, so to some extent, we're and most my experience when I talk to people with quote unquote literary reputations that they're just delighted to be on this list because there ain't no such list for general short fiction. Right, right. Well, and it's funny too because like one of our reviewers said like she voted on the thing and was like this is a really good book but it's really literary and it's getting lots of attention on the literary lists, which didn't impact the weight of her vote at all but it was an interesting comment that she thought maybe it didn't need our attention because it was getting attention by another sort of set of people um but i like to think that we're going to bring that we're going to show our readers that stuff and and like one of the books that um somebody wrote and said oh you missed this and i've seen it on other uh best of lists is circe by Madeline Miller, which mm. I don't even think anybody reviewed. We it we didn't see it come in, and it was heavily marketed as mainstream. Um, but it has hit other lists, and and that's great. I mean, more lists, mm-hmm. different kinds of books. That's you know, we all listed the same books. It would be really boring. Do you think that one of the things that the Locus list is, to some degree, though, is a core of the a center of the field view? I hope we hit that. I mean, I I wanted. I guess I I wanted all. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> but when but, but when, when you're swinging for the stuff that you hope to see, when I think about the locust list going back to when I first encountered it in the early '80s, mm-hmm. the pro, the core of it was mm-hmm. the biggest genre books of the time, and then associational yeah. stuff or science fiction from outside the core of the field was lesser for it, or not lesser in value, right. but le- had got less attention. And I kind of feel like Locus itself sits in the, in the middle of the field. And so right. its list and its issue to some degree reflects that directly, I think. And so these other books are interesting and important to bring in. But, you know, if you were to turn it and say, what does Locus suggest you should read in 2018? Right. It would have been, you know, pardon me, Sam Miller, Cat Valenti, it would have been Mara yeah. Davin, Maria Dava, Davana Headley. Good, so I mangled that. Right. Maria Davana Headley's yeah. The Mirror Wife. Naomi Novik's uh, Spinning Silver. You know, the, the bunch of books that got the, the, the most recommendations. And they feel like they put together a, almost like a consistent little like bookshelf of stuff we really think you would get value out of reading. Right? That would be a great bookshelf. I mean, it I have, be, but, but it would be a great bookshelf, you know. I was going to say, I, I think that's true, and I think going back to the days of Charles Brown, he wanted himself to be the center of the field. It's, mm. it's, I, it's, but Locus can't be the center of four or five different fields. I mean, we've got a, a section of the recommended reading list, for example, on um, on horror. Uh, and mm. and the, sense I look, the sense I get looking at that section, for example, there's some great books in it. But by and large, those books are not read by the same people who are going to be reading the books recommended in the science fiction section, are they? Yeah. No. And that's why it's a section, right? I yeah. mean, it would be – if we were just doing our top whatever books, it, it it would be a sort of muddled mess in some ways, I think. 
Well, yeah, because then you'd have horror and fantasy novels against hard science fiction novels and first novels. Well, first novels isn't a separate category by itself, I guess. But yeah, but yeah, you can't be in the middle of six different fields well, at the same and, time. Well, and we use different like we brought in, we bring in other people to do to help out with young adult because our main reviewers don't read a ton of young adults. So we mm-hmm. have a different set of people that help with that voting. And then I, for the nonfiction, I reach out a little wider for, because, you know, Gary reads nonfiction and Karen Burnham, who's doing short fiction for us also reads nonfiction, but we don't have a ton of people who mm. heavily read that. So, you know, I reach out to, I reached out to Alvaro and Graham Slight mm. and um, uh, Far Mendelssohn and other people just to say, even if it's just to say, tell us what we need to consider um, on the list. So, because it's a big, it's a, it's a lot of books. It's a it lot is a lot of books. books. And if I were going to direct anybody to one particular section, it's the one that I look to the most each year. It'd be the new, you know the the first novel list. Yeah. that's where we're looking to to the future. And that's where you see uh, Rebecca Rowanhorse with Trail of Lightning, Rich Larson with Annex, Derek Kunskin with The Quantum Magi- Magician, Ma- yeah, Magician, a uh, bunch of other titles. Do you feel that it, it's important that we fo- that we have have a clear focus on that as an area in the list? Uh, I think it's good. I mean, I think I think that it. That you read first, well, I think that for myself, I read first novels a little differently than I read other novels. Like if they have strengths, uh, if they have strengths and weaknesses, I I feel them differently knowing that this is somebody's first outing. Um, And I think a lot of the reviewers have that too. And, And it's also exciting when you're like, this is a new author. If you haven't read this person, it's not because you haven't been paying attention. It's not that they have 10 other books that you have to read to understand what kind of writer they are. This is the beginning, and you can go along with them. And I think, I think the real hardcore readers enjoy that, you know, having read everything somebody's written. And sometimes it's coming in first on their first novel. But and the other thing that happened this year, which hasn't happened as much, is that I think we lost three books that were on the list because they had been self-published in 2014, and that was a bummer. So like the. Um, is it uh, shoot I'm going to forget the name Nova Sum Zero mm. well, one, one question that some people might have which is related to um, the first novels list is how do you decide I can't think of an example this year but last year for example uh, since we talked about Sam Miller his first novel The Art of Starving was also a YA novel does that go in both sections or do you pick one no, it just goes in first novel. So first okay. novel trumps the the other sections. So this first novel section has, like it has Children of Blood and Bone, and it has mm. I Am the River, which is horror. It has, um, it has Baby Teeth, which is horror. It has, um, there's a, uh, it has a Blades of Black, which is YA. So it has all these mixed mm. things, and in it, you know, it would probably be good if we noted what is what. But it, it is, I mean, I think it's, an, and this year it's big, I think it's an exciting section, because it's sort of where, what, who we're going to be looking to in the next coming, the next few coming years. 
see where they make their sophomore title stand out or not. Mm-hmm. Not to lay any pressure on anybody, but. <laughs> Liza, you've been involved in compiling this list for some time, and you've been directly responsible for running and managing it for some time. Looking at this year's list and looking at the overview that Locus has provided of the state of the book field, the magazine field, whatever else, are there any impressions that you carry away from how the field is in 2018 or was at the end of that year? That is such a dirty trick of a question. <laughs> Do we get to ask you that about short fiction? Sure, I'm. I'm that I can ask you. It's fine. <laughs> but, I mean, I'm just. Yeah. I'll be having my wine listening to you. I mean, look, my short fiction. My short. What, why are you thinking? My short fiction answer is, as with all of all, all science fiction fantasy right now, the predominant issue remains climate change and the Anthropocene, and that under, underscores an awful lot of what's happening out there. There are right. issues in the short, fi- short fiction publishing scene, which we talk about with Neil Clark in a future episode, uh, but which basically amount to trying to come to terms with structural change in publishing and with the structural, the, the ongoing structural changes to how we read and how people expect to pay for fiction or not. And getting pe- persuading mm-hmm. people to pay for short fiction particularly is probably the predominant, one of the two major challenges for the short fiction field right now. But there's an awful lot of great people coming into the field, you know, new writers uh, or writers who are established but were outside of the markets that we read in. So that's terribly exciting. And some of that's true for the book market as well, I know. So how right. about... Uh, right, that was great. Thank you. Great. Um, I don't, I mean, I'm not really good at that sort of like, can you spot a trend or what do you think about what's happened? It's never, that's never been my strong suit. I think that we saw, I'm happy that we saw a lot of space opera. That makes, that always makes me happy. We saw a lot of that. And we also saw a lot of, um, finish like third in a trilogy, finishing series that still felt strong enough for people to put them on the list which isn't always the case. Like you get a strong first book and then by the end people aren't voting for it. Or it, it, you're like, oh, are you going to put this book on unless it's the third? And we saw a number of those. We saw a lot of, I feel like there's a, a lot of sort of post-apocalyptic and how are we all going to treat each other books mm-hmm. coming out, both in science fiction and fantasy. And, um, and I think that the YA list is fairly sophisticated, which is nice. It doesn't feel... Uh, it, it feels like a lot of books that are dealing with interesting things, a lot of character development, and and maybe not as simplistic as I have seen other YA lists in the past. My <laughs> argument, uh, okay. uh, just about the – talking about trends, and you talk about issues like global warming or the Anthropocene or the deteriorating Earth, I don't see that as a trend anymore. I think that's something which is – moved into the set of basic assumptions in the sense that science fiction for 50 years had the uh, what they used to call, I think Don Walheim called the consensus cosmogony, even though he was misusing the word cosmogony. You know, the idea, we'll colonize the moon, we'll have space stations, we'll move to Mars. So there, there are moon colonies, there are Mars colonies, and there are interstellar. That was just a given. I think part of the given of most modern science fiction is that the world is is deteriorating and isn't going to come back. It's it's not right. people are it's not what people are writing about, it's what people are assuming when they are writing about 
what they're writing about, and that includes the space opera novels. How many of these space operas involve characters who dying Earth. Yeah. from a dying Earth? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, or t- time travelers going back in time to come up with solutions to climate change or whatever exactly. else. So, yeah, very right. yeah. yeah. And there was a lot of nonfiction, which we've had. We have struggled. Gary knows to yeah. find titles to fill out the nonfiction list sometimes, and it really felt strong this year. There are a lot of, I mean, we have, there's two titles from Dame Hume Broderick. Um, mm-hmm. We have Gardner's review, set of reviews. Phil Pullman wrote a book about uh, storytelling. There's um, Gary Westfall did his Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, there's Joe Walton's Informal History of the Hugos, which is great. And there's some, oh, and then Al Navali had this um, book on John W. Campbell and cohort um astounding which um got a lot of attention this it's year. getting a lot of mainstream attention um, yeah and so but, that's exciting i don't usually see this much uh this many strong titles and this much attention on nonfiction. i feel like so that was pleasant to personalize this for just a second given what you do as the the, the editor-in-chief and publisher for locus what were your personal favorites for the year? You know, are there books that you would have particularly said, "Hey, I love these, and I think people should seek them out." Um. Yeah, I don't. I, <laughs> I, I hate to do this. I hate to do that, but I will um, say, I do. I do like Becky Chambers' books. They're they're light and episodic, um, but they are fun and space opera, and I enjoy that. Um, I always like, I really like Yoon Holly's writing, um, and that series has been really enjoyable. I really like uh, Levita Dar. Kat Valente wrote this sort of gonzo space adventure. Did you, did you read it, I'm sure, but very yep. sort of um, as somebody who came in with reading Douglas Adams stuff, it was very much a sort of callback to that and like gonzo humor, um, crazy ideas, crazy things happening in this interstellar rock contest. You know, that might be a – I hadn't thought about this in writing, but in Catherine Valenti's space opera may be the most visible example – but uh, looking at the list, there are a lot of books on it that, that seem to just be fun. In other words, there's a fair amount of – a lot of the short fiction. And some of the short fiction I read in uh, collections by um, Abby May Otis is, is one example. There are people who are clearly enjoying what they can do with science fiction and enjoying uh, the kind of narrative freedom that it gives. And uh, as much as we talk about some of these grim future worlds and the – you know. The background of Blackfish City, which uh, Jonathan and I have already named as one of our favorite novels. The background of the United States is gone. Um, right. you know, Tade Thompson's series, the, you, North America hasn't been heard from in 45 years. Um, there's a lot of grimness there, too, but there's a lot of kinds of celebratory fun fiction as well. And there's some of that celebration even shows up in a novel like Blackfish City. I mean, come well, on. Come, yeah, come I don't in, know. If I'm really attracted to it right now, because things just seem grim here, mm-hmm. you know, it's uh, it's 
it's hard every day when you wake up and you're like, oh, you know, what's going to happen on Twitter today? Like, is what is the president going to say and where are we going to end up? And oh, so having yeah. being able to read some <laughs> things that are lighter is, is nice. And we don't always get that. I mean, humor has been challenging for for science fiction, I think, in general. And, and we don't always get a lot of people trying for light. No. Um, and I mean, there's a lot. There are a lot of other books that are not like that are great on here. I'm just saying that those are in there, and that might be why. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure when the first full year in review issue of Locus was produced. It may have yeah. been in the 80s, but I'm not exactly clear. What do you think is the value of having a detailed benchmark coming out every February, like the Locus recommended reading uh, issue? Not just the list, but that combined thing where it's a snapshot of what reviewers thought was excellent, what ultimately right. readers thought was great, and then also a, state, a, a, a report on how the field is doing structurally. I mean, that seems to me to be the real value of this February issue and this whole process. Well, and that's the thing is, like, if it, it, you know, it could we we could we could not do it, and it would just not exist. And I don't know that who else is. I'm probably offending someone terribly by saying this, but like I don't know who else is is trying to do this thing, where we say this is what the publishers, the science fiction publishers were doing. This is what the science fiction magazines were doing. Uh, here's where, here's how many stories are going out in print and going out in online. Here's how many books we saw from these publishers. These imprints folded. These imprints merged together. Um, you know it. It's, I think it's important to have a snapshot. I don't know without that how you would tease that information out of something like Bowker. Like, how would you find that? Well, I don't, I don't think you would. I don't think you would. I well, think it, it's an it, enormous act of service to do it. Well, I mean, and it, it's a combination of as what you say, talking about the state of the field economically. I mean, the, the figures of, of circulation of magazines, the uh, number of books by publisher, all that kind of stuff I, I find fascinating. And putting that together with critical judgments, it seems to me is something that nobody else does. There are a lot of end-of-the-year lists, and I look at them all. And Sometimes it's the one science fiction critic for a website that just picks out five or ten favorite books. Sometimes each of five or ten reviewers gets to pick out one favorite book. But there's no attempt at building any kind of at least partial consensus. And I, I guess my feeling about uh, the recommended reading list, the parts of it that people obsess over, like <laughs> namely Am I Honored or Not, is a partial consensus because it's a consensus of, as you mentioned, people who are able to see these things. But it's right. not one person. No one person anymore, and I, I, I think I'm right, no one person can force a title onto a recommended, on, onto the locus right. recommended reading list. And, it, and it's completely not <laughs> driven by, um, by any marketing or publishing. I mean, it may be way upstream when it's who saw the books and how many copies did we get sent and, and did they send it to every single reviewer we have. But in the moment when we're voting, there's no, there is no outside pressures. It's just us talking about books. And that's a, that's a nice little moment inside of a, you know, a conversation that's just based on were the books good and do we enjoy them? I'm, I'm going to argue that Jonathan has an advantage over people talking <laughs> about novels. If you're dealing with short fiction, and especially short stories, I'll give you a break on novellas, and you've got a bunch of people reading, and I've, I've watched the emails, somebody will say, you guys should read this story, and then people will go read that story because right. it's a story. 
if there are six novels of 500 pages each, you can't say, you guys ought to go read this because you'll probably get an email back saying, get stuffed. I've got my other <laughs> stuff to read. I'm, well, to some degree, that's why Charles used to read, read, do the final read on it, because he would go and I sit have, down and read them. I'm, I know you do too, Leslie. I, yeah. I have a question for Jonathan. Why are there so many novelettes this year? I don't know. <laughs> no, no. I, mean, there, what, there I haven't really thought about it at all. Uh, it may just be a time crunch or a time commitment thing. There are fewer novellas and there are a ton of novelettes. Or is, are novelettes as a category just sort of blossoming right now? Actually, what I think it probably is is that the markets, the main fiction markets, are comfortable with novelettes and there is there's so many novellas published now that they actually push each other out in much the way that books do. I mean, you talk about books that don't get quite enough votes. There were a lot of novellas that almost got enough votes that could have made the list because the thing you naturally expect right now is that you're going to get an enormous novella list because you have a number of specialty novella programs and a lot of sympathy towards publishing them. Probably, I mean, at a glance, the print magazines are producing more of them than they used to. Certainly, Tor.com Publishing is producing quite a number and other publishers are as well. But the actual com- competition to get them voted on, that's, that, that remains. Why novelettes as opposed to short stories? I think maybe because maybe it's the anthology market, actually, thinking about it. The anthology market is probably more sympathetic to no- novelettes than, no- than short stories. And th- there are a lot of uh, stories that are on the, ba- on the list from anthologies. And possibly even, and this is just a speculation, I don't know, I think, when I, if I'll think about this tomorrow and go, there's no truth to this, possibly even <laughs> the push to novellas is, is dragging novel, short stories up to novelette length. People are writing longer generally. Certainly, um, just, just as, I mean, Gary and I were talking about this the other day, uh, outside the podcast, just as there are novels that have been cut back to novellas because they can appear and that makes them tighter, there are short stories that are being dragged up to novella length because there's a market out there, you know. So there was a question. I was I had dinner with a, a writer who I shouldn't name because I haven't gotten her permission. And we were talking about the question of of some of the students that you see at places like Clarion. Some of the people, some of the young writers who are very much aware of things like Hugo and Nebula Awards, thinking if I bump this story up to novel at length, there'll be less competition during award season than there is for short stories. Not this year. No, 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 well, no, no, no. no, not this year. But that, the, the reason it's not this year is because they all did that and wrote novelettes. Right. Yeah. So, and then well, okay. the novelette market tanked. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the, no, 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 the market's going to tank at all. I think it's going to no. be just fine. Actually, I guess that's probably the outro question just to move to just a little bit. The year review issue is finished. It's out there. People can go to www.locusmag.com or follow the link in our show notes to pick up a copy of the February issue and to read it for themselves. There's a lot of really good, interesting stuff in there. At the end of it, did you come away feeling more or less optimistic about the state of the field? I felt more optimistic. You know, when it started, I always get this feeling like, oh, like were there, you know, were there really good books? Like, I know I read some I liked, but was it really a strong year? Like, you and I have this conversation. Was it a strong year? Was it a good year? And then um, part of it is going through and reading the reviewers' essays about all this, the novels that they liked. And there's so much love for the field in that. And and, it, and then I end up with this massive to-be-read list because I'm like, oh, I didn't actually, you know, I didn't get to that one. And... Um, 
And then I feel like it's when, it, when you hear somebody who's really excited about a book that sounds really good, and then you're like, oh, right, this is why I like this. That's how I feel at the end of this process. Not always. This year I do. This year I do. So that's a good thing. Excellent. And then one other final completely unfair question. And I know you've had no chance to, to chance to, but this is the kind of thing off the top of your head. As we sit here, February's done. We're in 2019. We're going to be at Worldcon before you know it. Right. Is, is there a book you're really looking forward to reading in 2019 that you haven't seen yet that you're really eager to get your hands on? That I haven't seen yet? Well, okay, that you haven't read yet. Uh, you haven't read uh, yet. Right. Well, no, I mean, I. That's so unfair. Um, not off the top of my head. I mean, there's a, I have a stack of books that I'm excited to read and I'm, and I'm looking at right now, but I, I can't even look past this month. I'm so frazzled from just getting through February. What about you? What are you excited about? I'm uh, very excited about Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir, which is a really terrific looking book. Guy Kay's got a new book out any time now, A Brightness Long Ago. That looks really great. You mentioned your love of space opera, and there are at least four or five space operas either just out or about to come out, whether it's the C.J. Cherry, Jane Fancher Alliance Rising book, which looks great. There's the Arcady Martins debut, A Memory Called Empire. There's a um, big new book from Elizabeth Bear for Saga, Ancient... In, in Festival Night. But they see I've read that. Festival Night, which looks really great. Um, and she has a fantasy too, but I really like her sense. Yeah, and you know, there's there's a, there's a handful of others, uh, and probably if I had to go around, I think Ted Chang has a new short story collection due out in about two months. Exhalation that looks great. Uh -huh. Got two original stories in it. Um, we also have Sarah Pinsker's debut Charlie novel, James. and Charlie. Charlie you know, just, just, yeah, we we're just talking about Charlie Jane Andrews, The City in the Middle of the Night which we really, really, I really enjoyed. I know, I know Gary did, and we talked mm -hmm. to her about it on the podcast. And there's also her partner, God, Annalie Newitz's new novel, which is coming out in September, a time travel novel that looks really, really interesting. There's buckets and buckets and buckets. Yeah, there's at least three I mean, anthologies. Like, how do you, Sorry? Oh, Sarah's Pinter's first Oh, no, that's her collection. Her collection's coming out, but her first book's coming out this year, I think, in September. We've got a copy, called. yes. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, I'm excited for that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. No, I was going to say, there are, there are three anthologies of translated fiction that I know of. There's the Ken Liu edit, uh, edited anthology that Gary has, and there's a couple, one coming out in India, the Golan's Book of South Asian Science Fiction, and there's one from a U.S academic press, the name of which escapes me right at this instant, but I'll try to put the show notes. Reincarnated, lots and lots uh, and lots, lots and lots of stuff. So I'm Wrong still optimistic. And, and, and I've got a copy. I, the, the reason I don't recommend a lot of Chinese novels is because, unless I've actually asked Ken Lu how to pronounce the names, I'm going to make a fool out of myself. But I have a copy of Tide by Chen Kufan, Kufan mm -hmm. I don't know, uh, which looks really like a Palo Bajo... Okay, somebody is going to say in the review, not me, because I, I'm saying right now that I'm not going to say it, that this is the Chinese Paolo Bacigalupi, right. which is both good and bad news, I suppose, for both of them, because mm. it's completely its own thing. But nevertheless, it's, it's about waste management. 
there's we have to do a podcast about this. <laughs> there's a series of science fiction novels about waste management going back to Nicola Nicola Griffith's Slow River. Great book. Yeah, whole genre there. Well, subgenre, very small subgenre. No one wants to read an anthology about that. I think we should finish. <laughs> I want to see. I want to see Jonathan's waste anthology. I'm, I'm going to hammer about it. From I'm now so on. glad you used the word anthology at the end of that sentence. Anyway, um, we should probably wind up. Thank you very, very much for making the time to talk to us today, Liza. We really appreciate it. It's a great issue. Obviously, we worked on it, so it would be. Um, and this you know, was not famous, though. <laughs> And I suppose we should encourage everybody who listens to go, if, if they don't already subscribe, to subscribe or to buy a copy of the issue, and then to vote, to vote in the Locus in the Locus Awards, which are, you know, the, I think that the list will be up shortly or is already up. Yes. And if they read Locus to fill out, the Locus Reader's Poll is always fascinating, too. Right. Uh, so Locus Reader should... The recommended reading list is up. The only thing we don't have up are awards tickets yet, but... Just wait any second now. So. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks, guys. That was fun. And we will we will talk to you again soon, and hopefully see you not too far down the road. Absolutely. Absolutely.